0: Well, good morning. Um, no one has ever maybe told you this, um, but I want you to know, every single one of us, that you are an expert. And you're like, I don't think so, Wes. I'm not sure I've ever been an expert at anything. No, you, you are. We all are. We are all experts of one thing, and here's what it is. You and I are experts at identifying awe, We're we're great at recognizing things that are awesome. It's something that we're really good at. It's something that we don't necessarily wake up in the morning and say, you know what? Today I'm going to recognize that what is awesome. Whatever I can find that's awesome, I'm going to go find it. I'm going to go look for it. But we are consumed with recognizing it, and we're really good at it. I mean, you can go all the way to the lowest level of it. I think this is something that kind of stirs a little bit of what happens on social media. The people that you follow on Instagram, the people that you're friends with on Facebook, you're scrolling through your feed and you're liking the posts that you think are good. And sometimes even liking the posts that you believe are awesome. On Instagram, you follow people that probably enjoy some of the same things you enjoy. You follow people on Twitter that you don't even know personally, but they're involved in something that you think is really incredible, and so you follow them because you wanna keep up with what's going on in their life, in their world, in, their, in, in everything that they're doing. And so you keep up with that because we think it's awesome. I think it's the reason that YouTube is on the rise. My kids are obsessed with it. Your kids are obsessed with it. Teenagers are obsessed with it. They spend hours and hours and hours watching videos about a little boy named Ryan reviewing toys. And it never ends. And they will watch it for hours, why? Because they think it's awesome. The toys are awesome. It's why Dude Perfect has become this phenomenon. Because people think what they do is awesome. It's compelling, it's captivating. And here's what's interesting. When you watch some of those videos, you actually want to repeat some of the things that you see in the videos. I mean, some of us did this when we were kids. We'd watch Karate Kid, and then we'd leave and we'd become Daniel and we wanna beat up everybody that we see. We wanna do the one-legged stance, you know? Or we think we're Maverick from Top Gun. Or maybe we think we're the Disney princess. Some of you would even argue that what someone else thinks is awesome is not what you think is awesome. There are some of you in the room today that you watch videos on YouTube about pimple popping. And that's disgusting, but there's something in you that you're proud of that. You're like, no, I watched that, that's me, I'll watch it. It's something, there's something awesome to watch that experience. And others would be like, man, that's disgusting, I don't agree, there's nothing awesome about that. But when we get captivated by some of these things, not only does it capture our attention, but sometimes it moves us to action so much so that we become incredibly sold out to the things that we recognize and identify as being awesome. It's what you see at sporting events, it's what you see on college campuses, Grown men who claim to be non-emotional people, taking their shirts off, painting their chest, screaming like a wild man because someone is running up and down a football field. Someone they've never even met. But we lose our minds because we want to be a part of the fandom. We want to be a part of something that maybe is a little bit bigger than ourselves. It's awesome. It's amazing. It's incredible. I was reading an interview this last couple of weeks about a World War II veteran And he was explaining what it was like to experience World War II. And it's interesting because he's talking about it. He's talking about how devastating the war was, how severe, how significant it was all over the world. But in the United States, it wasn't really that big of a deal. We weren't paying that much attention. But then Pearl Harbor happened and something changed. And all of a sudden, you had thousands upon thousands upon thousands of men lining up to go defend their country, the place where they believed was the most amazing place in the world, a place of freedom, a place of hope, a place for the pursuit of happiness. They wanted to go defend that. They wanted to be a part of something bigger than themselves, and he had an interesting thing that he said in this article, listen to what he says. He says, we have a tremendous capacity to live radically when we have been provoked by something great. Let me say that again, we have a tremendous capacity to live radically when we have been provoked by something great. We all want something that we can fight for. We all want something that we can join in on. We all want to be a part of an epic story. We want to participate in something bigger than ourselves. There's a longing for that. There's a void in us that we want to fill. And we can run on this continuous pursuit, trying to fill that void, trying to find what is most awesome and we give our lives to it. We exhaust ourselves, we go into debt, we compromise our convictions, we buy, we sell, we kick, we scratch, we claw to try to find that is what is awesome, that which is ultimately satisfying. And with that as our backdrop this morning, I want us to dive into a passage in Isaiah chapter six and begin to understand what might it look like for us today, every single one of us, experts at identifying awesome, What would it look like for us this morning to be awestruck by God Himself, to be captivated by who He is, so that we pursue Him with everything? We run after Him in full abandon, completely sold out. Let's pick up, starting in verse 1 in Isaiah chapter 6. Look what it says It says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. And we've got to pause right there and begin to understand a little bit of the context and the background that's going on in this passage. Isaiah is walking through a difficult season. He's walking through a difficult time. King Uzziah was an incredible leader. He was a man who trusted God and the people of Israel had experienced a lot of good things because he had placed his faith in God. He had trusted God and he had led the people well for 52 years I mean, can you imagine being in a country among a people group who have been led by the same person in a positive way for 52 years? You know, in the United States, leadership changes every four, potentially every eight years. Can you imagine 52 years? There's a good chance that Isaiah never knew another leader except for Isaiah, and all of a sudden, Isaiah has lost his life. He's no longer around. And there's gonna be a new leader, but that new leader is not gonna be Uzziah. There will never be another Uzziah. And so this is a time of... Uncertainty. The Assyrians are close. They're in close proximity. What's going to happen? Who's the next leader going to be? There's some confusion. There's some hurt. There's some pain. You know, it's interesting in our culture, when we walk through times of tragedy, we walk through some times of chaos. Churches actually see attendance go up because there's something that begins to draw us back when we walk through a difficult season. And so it's in this season that Isaiah says, I saw the Lord, he sees the Lord. And this is crazy encouraging for me because here's what I know, Isaiah was a prophet of God which means he already knew God, he already had a relationship with God and so what he's beginning to describe is this fresh encounter, this fresh experience. He gets to experience God in a new way. And it's encouraging for me because there are times in my life where I'm walking through life and I get to a season where I become incredibly distracted. And this is a reminder that my relationship with God was never intended to be a one-time thing on a specific day on a calendar in my past. But it's something I get to continually experience. And for some of us this morning, we're walking through a season where maybe it's even been tragic. It's been confusing. It's been chaotic. It's been dysfunctional. And we see in this passage that maybe this is a season that God wants to use to draw you closer to himself, to help open your eyes to who he is, so we can begin to see him. You know, oftentimes we can get stuck in a place where we begin to think when we're experiencing tragedy or we're experiencing some sort of destruction or pain or hurt, that God is trying to get after us, that God doesn't love us, that he doesn't care about us. But what this begins to show me immediately is that maybe it's his incredibly strong love in a season of destruction that is at work so that I can ultimately see him because there's nothing better for my life. There's no better remedy than to simply know who he is. And for some this morning, this isn't the year of King Uzziah's death, but maybe this is the year of chaos. Maybe it's the year where relationships are busted. They're dysfunctional. Maybe this has been the year of stress and anxiety and depression. Maybe this has been the year where finances have been a struggle. It's been the year of job loss Maybe it's been the year of overwhelming addiction. There was something that at one point in time you could handle it and now it owns your life and you're discouraged, you're frustrated, you're confused and you're just asking why? Why am I walking through this? And I want us to have some hope this morning because I don't believe that it's God trying to push you back, to push you out, to make you feel condemned, unloved. Maybe it's God actually trying to bring you closer so that you can see him more clearly and understand him more clearly so that he can set you up to live the life that you were created to live. That's the hope this morning as we begin to dive into this. What would it look like for us today to be awestruck by God, to be completely captivated by who he is, so much so that it moves how we live. It changes who we are. Look what Isaiah sees in this passage. It says that he saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe, filling the temple, This is an incredible scene. This is an incredible experience for Isaiah. But I I, I want us to help understand exactly what's happening in this passage because there's some confusion in this. You know, the Bible says in some places that man cannot see God, that we can't actually see him with our physical eyes. And then in other places, it says that men will see God. And so where where do we find the balance in that? Where do we land with this? If, If Isaiah is saying, I saw the Lord, what did he see? John Calvin says this, He said, God gives Isaiah this moment according to his finite capacity, an ability to perceive the inconceivable mystery of God. In other words, Isaiah catches a vision. He begins to understand, he begins to see this picture, this manifestation of God himself, and he finds himself in a place where he is completely awestruck by the power, by the presence, by the glory of God. I mean, it's incredible. Let's do this this morning. Let, let's, let's have a little crowd participation. I'm gonna ask you to do something, and this is not me try to make you feel uncomfortable or try to do something tricky. You're like, Wes has got student ministry in his past, and student pastors, they like to prank people. Um, I'm not gonna do any of that, okay? But just trust me. I'm gonna ask you to close your eyes for just a minute and just begin to picture something with me. If you've got kids, you may have to keep one eye open to keep them from running away. This is their chance to escape. But I want you to begin to try to picture the scene. Think of a familiar scene. Peaceful place, your favorite place. Maybe it's a beach. Maybe it's up in the mountains somewhere. Maybe it's in your backyard. Maybe it's in the confines of your man cave at home. But where is that space? Just picture it. You're sitting there. As you begin to look up, you look out and you see this giant throne extending up into the clouds. It's massive. It's bright. It's unlike anything you've ever seen. Your mind is having a difficult time even just recognizing what it is. There's a king sitting on his throne. The legs stretch out as far as you can see. It's filling the whole scene. And the train of his robe is filling the space, so much so that there's no room for anybody else to be standing near the throne. It's bright. It's hard to see. Maybe you're even having to close your eyes and squint and look away, like looking into the sun. And then you notice there's these giant creatures. There's no earthly comparison for what you're seeing right now. They're massive. They're beasts. They're described in the passage as seraphim, which means the burning ones. And it says that they have six wings. So just picture this. Imagine this. These these beings these creatures heavenly creatures in the sky and with six wings two hiding their faces two covering their feet and two keeping them in the air as they do something what are they doing they're declaring they're shouting to each other holy 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 they're so big i mean the entire space Everything you see is shaking. It's like an earthquake. There's smoke in the air. This is an incredible scene. You feel the ground beneath you shaking, all in the presence of the king on his throne. You can open your eyes. I don't know that anybody maybe experienced anything super magical or mysterious in that moment, but I wanted us just to begin to picture the scene because this is a scene that Isaiah describes to us. This is what he's seeing. It's this vision of God himself, of God's glory, of his power, of his holiness. These creatures are declaring holy, holy, holy. It's the attribute of all attributes. It's it's in a category of itself. This is an OMG moment for Isaiah. All-powerful, all-knowing, perfect in the presence of God the ultimate authority ruling and reigning over all creation. This is the whole earth is full of his glory. This is an incredible scene. How do you know, what's the distinguishing mark of someone who trusts and who has experienced God's presence? A continual declaration of his glory. It's a life surrendered, a life committed, a life that declares the glory of God. That's what you see with these heavenly beings, these heavenly creatures in the scene. You know, sometimes, we walk into this place, and we begin to sing songs. And and many times, we get to a place where it's out of obligation. I sing the song out of obligation, I show up out of obligation to somebody, or maybe even to God, and we do this thing we call worship. It's really singing, and it's really just one way that we worship. But worship is simply declaring God's glory. It's recognizing that he is awesome, it's being awestruck by God, So much so that we begin to declare how great he is as we sing songs. And my prayer is that today we would see God in such a way that we don't sing out of obligation, but we sing because we're experiencing him in that moment, just like we see in this picture. They're experiencing God's goodness for all of eternity. They're not just worshiping him. They're not declaring his glory because of something they experienced just in the past, but they're experiencing him right now. They're recognizing something new right now. They're gonna recognize something new tomorrow, and because of that, they're worshiping because they're experiencing him. That's what it means to worship. That's what it means to be in this place and to sing. And for some of us, we might get stuck in this place of thinking, man, God is this egotistical being demanding our worship. But the truth is, is he's demanding our worship not so that it can make him feel better about himself. He knows who he is. He is secure in who he is. But he's demanding our worship. He's demanding our attention, our affection, because he knows that when we worship him, it sets us up to be the best. You know, we get confused sometimes. We begin to think about how we live. We begin to think and focus on our behavior. We begin to ask ourselves questions like, man, was I supposed to cross that line? Was I supposed to go to that place? Was I supposed to spend the last few years with this specific person? And we begin to think that that's what God is most concerned with. And yes, he's concerned with what we do. He's concerned with our reputation. He's concerned with what our lives look like. But most importantly, God is concerned about our worship. You say, well, I I, I need to stop doing this. I need to stop going after that. I need to stop drinking this. I need to stop eating this. I need to stop watching this. I need to stop listening to that music, watching that show, looking at this on the computer. I need to stop hanging out with them. I need to stop gossiping about him. And all of that may be important. But God ultimately is concerned about where are we pointing our affection, our attention? What are we most compelled with? because he knows that if we get our worship right, then our life will begin to look right. And that happens as we begin to see him, and that's the scene we see here with Isaiah. And then Isaiah responds, look what it says in verse five. As he sees this and he's experiencing this, in verse five it says, "'Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined.'" Because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I don't know if you've ever been to a place or you've been in an experience where you were just completely captivated by what you were looking at. A couple years ago, we got to go to Colorado and I remember driving through the Rocky Mountain National Park. And it was one of the most beautiful places I've ever experienced. Constantly I would stop and just try to take pictures and the pictures never really capture what you're truly experiencing. Did you know in that moment, I never had the thought as we're driving through this amazing place, I never had this thought of, wow, Wes, you are really awesome. I didn't think that. I never ever considered how awesome I was. In that moment, in that experience, there was zero inflation of my ego. Instead, I was captivated by what I was experiencing, what I was looking at. When we experience something truly remarkable, it's not a realization of our greatness, but it's a realization of our smallness. And this is what Isaiah is experiencing in this moment. He thinks, he sees God, he recognizes God's presence, and he thinks, I am done. My my life is about to end. He is saying, you are worthy and I am unworthy. You are the ultimate perfection and my imperfection is keeping me from experiencing life. It is going to be the end of me. What is he saying? He's saying the same thing that Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Because of sin in my life, I can't experience the glory of God. It can't exist in the same place and this is what Isaiah is recognizing in this moment. What is sin? It's something that every single one of us are born with. It's the idea that God is holding out on me. It's the idea that I know what's best for my life more than what God knows is best for my life. I trust myself, I trust my feelings, I trust my experiences, I trust that in this moment I'm gonna make the best decision regardless of what God says. I believe that the best boss for my life, the best authority in my life is me. And every single one of us are born into that way of thinking. We are born with that mindset at the core of who we are. And the result of that is the inability to even exist with God, to have any relationship with God. Best case scenario, without God, is death. And it's ultimately what Isaiah recognizes. I mean, we know this. I mean, you can see it in the youngest beings, the youngest humans, You don't have to teach them this. No one in this room sat down with their kid and said, hey, listen, come here, let's talk about this. When your brother starts picking on you, I want you to grab his arm and I want you to bite down on his arm so hard that you begin to rip his flesh. And if it's not bleeding, you're not doing it right. You got me? All right, good, let's go. All right, be good. Like, nobody had that conversation. Nobody sent their kids to jerk.com to teach them how to be a jerk, but there's something in us where there's times where we get to a place where we're selfish. We're consumed with me. I want to do what I want to do. I hate you. I wish you were never born. And it's something that we find ourselves in. And it's one thing to recognize that in everybody else, but it's a whole other thing to see it in ourselves because there's things in our life that we know are not good for everybody else. But when we think about us, it's a little bit more difficult to come to that reality. That's what Isaiah's experiencing. He takes responsibility. He owns what's going on in his life. He owns who he is. We have a difficulty with that. We live in denial. You know, I'm really thankful that um, God designed us in such a way that we don't remember a lot in the first two, three, four years of our lives because we would have to remember what it was like to be potty trained and that would be a really, really difficult thing to be walking through and just be like, oh my gosh, I'm just such a disaster. I can't get control of myself. But I'll never forget one of my boys, when he was probably about two, two years old, we were walking through the potty training journey and I looked at him and I, was, I you know, I, I knew, I knew. I was like, dude, did you just go to the bathroom in your pants? And he looked at me in all seriousness and he goes, uh-uh. <laughs> and I'm like, kind of walk a little closer and I'm like, dude, you went to the bathroom in your pants, didn't you? He goes, and then he starts getting emotional about it. He's like, no, I didn't, daddy. And I'm like, well, then who, who would do that to you? Like, what, what happened then? If you didn't do it, then who did? And he goes, I didn't do it, daddy, you did it. And I was like, whoa, this has gotten real weird. But don't we struggle with that? We struggle with taking ownership of some of the things that we know are true about us that we don't want anybody else to know about. We struggle with owning, we struggle with ultimately finding a place of humility, of taking ownership, taking responsibility for everything that we are, but that was Isaiah's response. And it's an important response for us this morning because look how God responds as Isaiah begins to see God accurately. He doesn't demand an explanation. He doesn't say, hey, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let me, let me explain this, let me explain. He just says, man, I, I deserve death. And then God responds, look at verse six. It says, then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. Man, what a bizarre scene. I mean, I would have let you keep your eyes closed to kind of walk all the way through the entire scene, but I know half the room would have been asleep. Some of you are already sleeping. And you're like, come on, Wes, wrap this up, land the plane. But this is an incredible scene, something in. Incredible happens in this moment. Isaiah understands who he is and he understands who God is and he realizes there is nothing I can do in order to be in God's presence. I am going to lose my life. And then God responds. He responds to Isaiah's humility and he does something. It says that one of these seraphim flies to the sacrificial altar and he takes one of the coals with tongs and he takes it and he touches it to Isaiah's mouth. Now it's interesting, he doesn't touch it to his arm. He doesn't touch it to the top of his head. He doesn't touch it to his feet, to his legs. He touches it to his mouth. And I think there's something significant in that for us to recognize because sometimes we recognize some of the terrible things in our lives. We recognize some of the faults, some of the hangups, kind of the, the one thing that we continue to struggle with. But we can sometimes become really arrogant, confident with what we do well. And what did Isaiah do well? He was a prophet. He could speak fluently. He was gifted in that. It was his best attribute. And this heavenly creature takes this coal and he touches it to Isaiah's mouth. And I think what he wants us to see is he wants us to see that even our best effort, even the best about who we are, cannot allow us to be in the presence of God himself. So he takes this coal and he touches it to his mouth. And it's interesting in the story that you don't see anything about what happens after the coal touches his mouth as far as physical pain. I don't know about you, but if um, somebody touched my mouth with a coal, I'm gonna tell everybody about it. I'm gonna tell everybody about how terrible the experience was. I mean, we've all roasted marshmallows on a metal coat hanger before. We've been at the bonfire, we've been roasting the marshmallows, and we decided it would be a good idea to pull the marshmallow off of the metal coat hanger with our teeth. And you get it close to your mouth and you begin to pull it off the coat hanger and then you forget that that coat hanger is really, really, really hot. And then all of a sudden you just hear that sizzling sound. And then you're walking around, it looks like you got a worm on your lip for like two weeks because you just got this nasty blister. I mean, there would, there would be pain involved if somebody had touched a coal to our mouth. Isaiah makes no mention of the pain. I mean, that would have been the, the adequate reality, but instead it says, see, this has touched your lips and your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Here's what this is doing. God is pointing us to ultimately Jesus. He wants us to see that yeah, you know what? There's nothing you and I can do to exist and to be in a relationship with God the way that it was intended to be. There's nothing I can do. There's nothing I can accomplish but God did something. He accomplished everything I needed him to accomplish so that I could have a relationship with him so that I wouldn't have to experience the pain so I wouldn't have to experience the death that was going to be a result of my selfishness, of my sin. He took that pain, he took the death away by sending his son Jesus to die on a cross, to die the death that I deserved. He sent Jesus to die in my place and I get to be the beneficiary of that. That's what this scene is pointing us to. There was a result that was supposed to happen because of my life. And that doesn't have to be my future because Jesus did everything that needed to be done. There's nothing else left to be accomplished. Jesus has accomplished it. It is finished. When I was in first grade, one of my best friends um, had a swimming pool in his backyard. And not, a, not many people in far west Texas had swimming pools, and, um, but they did. And I remember it was late one winter, early spring, and so the swimming pool was still really nasty. It was still had water in it, but it had been sitting throughout the winter time. It had grass and leaves and dirt. It was disgusting. I mean, it was, you, as, a, as a first grader, you would look at it and you think, man, there are evil spirits living in that water. But what does a first grader do when there's a big body of water in someone's backyard. You play as close as you can to it. And so that's what we were doing one afternoon. We were hanging out after school, we were running around in his backyard and we were playing around the pool of filth with all the evil spirits in it. And my buddy decided it would be a good idea to jump up on the diving board and start bouncing on the diving board like it was a trampoline. Until it wasn't such a great idea when he slipped and he fell in to the water. I know what some of you think, you're like, well, Wes, what did you do? nothing. <laughs> I was like, I am not jumping in there after you. But I remember in an instant, as he started to shout for help, he was looking at me like, dude, do something. I was like, nope, nope, You're, you, you made this choice. You get to suffer the consequences of your poor decisions. And so I just stood there and watched. And I noticed out of the corner of my eye, his brother, who was a, a senior in high school, was playing basketball on the other side of the yard. And in between the basketball court and the swimming pool, there was this waist level fence. And immediately he dropped the basketball and he began to sprint across the yard and he jumped over the fence and I'll never forget it because I was like, wow. I mean, I was just amazed that he had the ability to do that. He jumps in the water and he grabs my friend, he pulls him out. Shoes and everything, didn't take off any clothes, he jumps in, he pulls him out of the mess and he gets to the side. And I'll never forget, he was completely overwhelmed with what was going on in that moment. He had saved his life. He had rescued him. You know, it would have been really easy for him to stand on the side like me and not just say, nope, I'm not gonna help you, but just judge him and condemn him and say, man, I can't believe you did that. But instead, he jumped into the mess and he pulled his brother out and he saved his life. And that's our story, that's our message, that's our hope, that's our security, that's what we trust in. Jesus didn't stand on the side and judge us and condemn us and tell us that we blew it and that we can't measure up. He jumped in the mess and he pulled us out when he gave his life and he went to the cross, but he came back to life. And that gives me all the confidence that I need to trust and to recognize, but it leads me to a place of worship. And when Isaiah experiences this, he does this in verse eight, check this out. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. I mean, what an incredible scene. Isaiah begins to recognize God's glory. He begins to see God's goodness. He begins to see these heavenly beings worship him. And then he recognizes that the the, the reality for him is death. And then God does everything that needs to be done to rescue him from death. And he gives him life. And then he says, Who will go for us? And Isaiah responds with, Here am I. I. Send me. I'll go. Now, I don't know about you, but when someone asks me a question about, you know, hey, what are you doing next weekend? I'm like, I'm a little skeptical. I'm like, well, um, I, you know, I don't know. I may have some things going on. Why? Because I wanna know some details before I commit to doing something with somebody or for somebody. That's just the way we're all wired. But in this moment, God has done everything to gain Isaiah's full confidence and trust. And he says, wherever you send me, whatever you ask of me, I surrender. You see this response of humility and then a response of Surrender. And it's the two most important responses every single one of us could ever make in our life when we recognize the awe of God, when we've been awestruck by God. I mean, notice the contrast in Isaiah's in the story. I mean, he starts the story off and he's consumed by the death of Uzziah. He is in a situation where he says, what in the world are we going to do? How is this gonna turn out to be good? And in just a few verses later, he responds to God. and He says, God, whatever you say, I'm all in. And I think this is important for us to recognize because what happens for Isaiah is he begins to see through a new lens. He begins to see through a new perspective. He sees these heavenly beings worshiping God, declaring his glory, and it gives him confidence. And he doesn't become obsessed or focused on what God is going to continue to do for him. He looks and he recognizes what God has done and who God is, and he finds his confidence in that. And my fear is is that we struggle with that. There's a song that's popular right now and, and maybe you want to write this down. I, I would I would say to every single one of us, let, write down the title of the song. It's called Nothing Else by Cody Carnes. And maybe you just need to have this song on repeat this week and let it be your prayer. But there's a line in the song where it says, There's more more than anything you can do. He's he's singing this prayer to God and he says, More than anything you can do for me. I just want you. He's not focused on the blessings, he's not focused on what God has done, what God hasn't done, he just wants to know God more. And my fear is that for some of us, we get trapped in this mindset and our relationship begins to look with, our relationship with Jesus begins to look and sound like something like this. It's more of what have you done for me lately, Jesus? And you show up here, and we show up here, and we worship together, and we have this incredible experience. The songs are amazing, everything is great. You're like, man, church was so good this morning. I'm so glad we went to church. It's Labor Day weekend, and we gave up our weekend to go to church this morning, and man, I'm so thankful for it. And then you get to work on Tuesday, and that contract is secured, you get, this, you get the contract in the mail, and you're like, oh, this is a game changer for us. The life is gonna be great, everything is awesome. Yes, 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 let's go. And then three weeks later, you start to think, man, God was really good three weeks ago. And you go to dinner with a friend, and you begin to talk about life, and you're like, man, I just don't know. I just don't know anymore. I'm not, I'm not sure that I have any confidence. You know, there's some things going on in my life and if God really did exist and if God really cared about me and if God really loved me, I'm not sure I would be going through this. And, and can I just be honest with you? Can I just be transparent? Can I, can I trust you? You know, really what I'm thinking is I, I'm not really sure God even exists. And then you get that pay raise that you've been praying for. Something good happens, somebody's been healed, and you think, oh my gosh, this is awesome, this is amazing, this is exactly what I thought God was gonna do for me. I love God, I love COF, I love Mark and Laura, life is great, this is amazing, this is awesome. And then your friend calls, and she says, hey, can we, can we hang out? And you get there, and she goes, hey, listen, it's, it's, it's not you, it's me. You're great, you're amazing, you're handsome, you've made me feel better than I've ever felt in my entire life, but I think we should just be friends. And you're like, God, where are you? God, I thought you were good, I thought you wanted good things for me. And then we show up back in this place. And we're like, man, I'm all in right now because this feels good. But I'm not sure I was all in on Tuesday. I don't know if I was all in on Friday. You know, we live in a culture where we're so sure, yet we're really not sure. And my prayer for us this morning is that we would simply just know him. Not know his blessings, but that we would simply just know him and understand him, so that we could begin to look away from our problems and begin to look to God. Because I think as we begin to look to God, we'll be able to look back at our problems and see things differently, because we're gonna see something we didn't see before. We're gonna recognize that we have a strength with us that is God's strength. And we didn't recognize that before because we didn't really know God. So my prayer is that we would simply know God. That's what Isaiah sees in this vision. And so what I want us to do this morning is I want us to just sit and reflect as the band comes out and sings a song over us. And I know that there's this temptation in this point of the service, every time we do this, you're like, man, every time Wes teaches, he always wants to do a song at the end and I'm ready to get out of here. I'm ready to get on 290, beat the traffic. But can I just just encourage you this morning? We did this last night and there were several people that came up at the end and they were like, man, the most powerful part of the service was nothing you said, Wes. And I was like, awesome. (laughs) But man, that song at the end just brought it all together for me. And so I'm gonna ask that you just sit. And that as we sit and we listen to these words and we see the images on the screen in front of us, that we'll begin to recognize more of who God is and that it would lead us to a place of humility and surrender so that we can leave this place this morning knowing him more. And then as we leave, we declare his glory. And as we declare his glory, the people in the world around us begin to see his glory in us. Not our own glory, but they see his glory Not because God is up in heaven trying to drive his ego higher, but because he knows that if people know him, it sets them up for the best life. And we live in a world that's broken and busted. And if you don't think so, just watch the news. And there's a world that needs healing. There's a world that needs restoration. There's a world that needs peace and hope and love. And God wants us to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. He wants us to be awestruck by him because when we're awestruck by him, people don't see us, they see him. And there's nothing better that this world needs to see than him. So let's just focus on him for a few minutes. God, we love you. We trust you. And God, I pray in these next few moments that we would simply just recognize more clearly who you are and that we would be able to trust, that we would be able to humble ourselves, we would be able to surrender fully to who you are and who you want to be in our lives, and that your glory would be seen. We want to see you, and we want others to see you. So show yourself in these next few moments. In Jesus' name, amen.